as we go to the Word of God this morning, we're going to go to Luke chapter 13, verse 22. And I pray that you guys are excited for this word because this word is very important to me. In Luke chapter 13, I started thinking this week as I was praying, I said, Lord, what do I preach next Sunday? And I started thinking about it all week long. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a pastor, and I was asking him, hey, what are you preaching on Sunday? And he was telling me. And then I asked him a question. And I said to him, if it was our last Sunday as pastors, what would we preach? And he said, I never thought about that. And I started thinking, if it was my last Sunday as your pastor, and I knew that tonight I was going to be in heaven with the Lord, would I preach a sermon to make you feel happy? Would I preach a sermon to encourage you? Probably not. If you would honestly ask me, Pastor, if, if this was your last sermon here on earth, what would you preach? I would honestly preach the message I'm going to preach today because my greatest concern would be whether you are truly saved or not. So get ready for this one. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. The word of God says, Then Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their place at the feast of the kingdom of God Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, you know what has to be said. Let it be said according to your authority out of my mouth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, you guys can have a seat as we get into this word today in Scripture. We're going to answer an honest question, simple question. You guys ready? Are you saved or not? 
There's no in-between. I don't want anyone to say, kind of saved. I think so. I hope so. It is my goal today, after this message, you will know without a doubt, without a doubt, whether you are a believer or not. Let me take you back to 1942. 1942, during the World War, Hitler set out to destroy millions of Jews. And Hitler was not just going to show up and attack them because he feared their strength, that there was a lot of them. Hitler came up with this idea, an evil plan. I will deceive them. And I'm going to convince them of a better life. I'm going to promise them a better job. I'm going to promise them more peace. And when I promise them a better life and more peace and more joy, they're going to volunteer to go on these trains to Auschwitz in Germany. And millions of Jews were deceived. In fact, this picture that you're seeing right now is one of the most horrific pictures of the Holocaust. Because in this picture, you're not going to see people screaming. You're not going to see people fighting. You're going to see millions of people volunteering into these trains with their suitcases packed, convinced and deceived that they're on their way to a better life. And as these millions of Jews got inside these trains with smiles and laughter in hopes of a better life and future, there was a point in the journey when they were reaching the end that they realized they had believed a lie. And many of them were exterminated, shot, killed, destroyed. And more and more and more Jews hopped on this train deceived that they were on their way to a better life. And it was, till today, one of the most diabolical plans from any dictator in our lifetime. Where do you think Hitler got such a plan? The devil. The devil was his inspiration. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 was the inspiration. The God of this age. What did Hitler want to be? God. The God of this age. Talking about the devil. The God of this age has, say it with me, blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, one of the demonic strategies that the devil has, of all the strategies we've talked about in the years during Hell Series, or even last Sunday with all the lies of the enemy, one of the most wicked lies that the church doesn't even talk about is this one lie. You're okay with God. You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. You're fine. God loves you the way you are. 
And when you die, you're going to be there. No doubt about it. And one of the things that Satan does is the Bible says he blinds the mind. How is it that you can see with your mind? It's not talking about your eyes. It's talking about your mind because you can see literally with your eyes, but you can also see with your imagination. And one of the demonic tools that Satan uses is false perception. And he will get you to perceive that you are saved. That you are a Christian. That you are okay with God. And when this life is over, you will be on your way to heaven. In fact, my greatest fear as your pastor, my greatest concern for this church and why I'm preaching this message if it was my last one today on earth, is that I am afraid and concerned that not just in this church, but in many churches, there are many people on the wrong track. There are many people deceived into thinking that they're headed to a better life when they die, that they're on their way to heaven when they're actually on their way to hell. Satan blinds our minds with a great deception. Why does he deceive us this way? Why does Satan want to deceive many people into believing that they're saved? Well, it's just like the Jews there. If you believe that you're on your way to a better life, there will be no resistance. There will be no fight. And actually, people won't even even know. They won't even know that they're in prison. So it is Satan's objective to convince people in the church that they are saved, that they are fine, that they are on their way to heaven, and everything is going to be okay. But Jesus had this to say in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. He said, many, everyone say many, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, the day of death, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? The word prophesy literally means to preach the word of God. Did we not preach your word in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. And Jesus said this, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. See, one of the most frightening things that Jesus said, and he said a lot when he talked about hell, was that many people, would be on the wrong track. Many people would be deceived into thinking that they were saved. Many people will go in judgment telling Jesus, I went to church. I preached. I taught Sunday school. I served in the ministry. My grandmother was a believer. And Jesus said these two key words, I never knew you. The word no has two definitions. These are two key words you have to learn. 
The word know that Jesus used because the New Testament was originally written in Greek. So when you read the Greek translation, you know exactly what he meant to say. The word know has two translations. The first translation is the word pronounced gnosko. Gnosko is the type of knowledge that you have based on an experience and a relationship. So let me give you an example. If someone would break into my house, just open the door and come in, unannounced, and let's say someone just rushes into your house and opens the door, and you just look at him and say, who are you? I don't know who you are. And you call the police to have them arrested and you throw them out of your house. And I tell you, why you got to be so mean? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were supposed to be loving. You would never think that I would say that to you. Because logically, you are justified in saying, I don't know you, so get away from my house and get away from me and you will send them to prison. That's what God said here. There are many people that are going to come to judgment and has never truly had an experience with me. They never really had a relationship with me. And when I cast them out and say, get away from me, we are not to look at God and say, wait a minute, God, I thought you were loving. I thought you were merciful. I thought you were graceful. When God throws you out, he will be justified because you have never been truly born again. You have never been truly saved. You never had a real experience with God. Maybe what you had in the church was emotional because you felt something. Maybe you had this fear. Oh, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm just going to pray this prayer. But many people, Jesus said, are not going to have a true experience. Same scenario, but this time, I come to your house. I open the door. I sit down and make myself at home. And you come downstairs and see me. I know you wouldn't call the cops on your pastor, would you? I know you wouldn't throw the pastor out of your house, would you? And if someone in your neighborhood says, hey, I saw someone go into your house, and you look, you would say, oh, don't worry. I know him. I have a relationship with him. He's my pastor. I'm not going to throw him out. You see, the second word for no in the Bible Gonosco is a knowledge of experience through a relationship. The second word is the word oida in the Greek, which literally means knowledge, but that's based on information. Head knowledge, but not relational knowledge. I can tell you right now, I know President Trump. But many of you would assume when I tell you I know him, it's because I Google him. I know his biography, I've read his book, I'm a Republican, whatever you want to say it, but believe me, if I tell you I know President Trump, 
It's the type of no that means oither, head knowledge. I don't know him like his wife does. I don't know him like his children do. So here's the truth about what God is saying. Many people think they know me, but they don't. They think they've had an experience with me, but they haven't. They have head knowledge of me. They know some verses and scripture about me. They come to church, they've learned about me, so they're convinced they know me. But I'm going to say plainly to them, I don't gnosko you. I have not had a relational experience with you. Get away from me. See, this is why a man asked Jesus in the opening passage, how many people will be saved? And look at Jesus' response in verse 24 and 25. He just says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you. I don't conosco you. But where are you coming from? Jesus doesn't answer him the way this man thought he would. This man wanted to know how many will be saved. Jesus doesn't give him that answer. What Jesus tells him is that many will not be saved. Many will not enter. And he says, strive for the narrow door. In conversation, not only does Jesus not tell this man his answer, he tells him many are not going to be saved. And then he tells them, you enter through the narrow door, saying, you just worry about you. That's what he tells this man. Because a lot of us are so, well, I wonder who's saved. I wonder if this person's saved. I wonder if that. But you know what Jesus says? Stop worrying about them. And worry about you. Make sure that the few are you. That's what he says. Make sure. That you know without a doubt that you are saved. Church, my question today is are you sure? Are you sure that if you were to die today, you'd be in heaven? Because time's running out. On Tuesday, I went to go preach, and as I was driving, I put the address on the GPS and I noticed something. I saw the destination in the screen. And as I got closer to that destination, I noticed the time was counting down. And it was almost like God was showing me there. There's a destination when you die. It's heaven or hell. And the closer you get to that destination, the more your time is running out. And as I was looking at that GPS, I noticed a little triangle that represented me. 
that little triangle, that GPS was not worried about any other car around me. Even though I was on I-95 and there was a million cars all around me, the only focus on that GPS was me. That is what God is telling you this morning. Stop worrying about everyone else. Worry about your destination and where you're headed because time is running out. Time is running out. Stop playing games with your soul. Focus on you. Because this is what Jesus did. When I made a wrong turn, which I often do, that GPS did not criticize me. It did not say, where are you going, dummy? It doesn't say, why didn't you listen, fool? It did not criticize or hurt me. The only thing it did was rerouted me to the right destination. And this is what God has done for the world. All man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God in his love and mercy sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to reroute us back to the Father. And he says, I'm rerouting you. And the only way to get back on track is through my son Jesus. And the same way that GPS did not give up on me when I made wrong turns. Church, I'm telling you right now, when you are at your worst, God did not give up on you. He's always been rerouting you, pointing you to Jesus before it's too late. He doesn't give up on you. All of us have sinned. And it's only through Jesus that we are rerouted. Jesus came to save us. To save us. I mean, that's a word we use in the church a lot. What does it mean? The word saved in the Bible literally means to rescue from destruction. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. When the Bible says Jesus came to save us, what the Bible is saying is that Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, and he is the only one that ever did so and died and rose again. And it is only through him that you are made right with God. So when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved. He rescues you from the destruction of hell. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 mentions this word that's in the Greek as well. It's the word sozo. That's what it means to be saved, to rescue from destruction. For it is by grace that you have been what? Now let's read that together. It is by what? Not Pastor David, not the Pope Francis, not anything, not religion, not a church, not your grandmama or her mama. It says, for it is by what? Grace. What is grace? Grace is love you do not deserve. No one deserves the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. That is why it is a gift that is offered to you. The Bible says it is not by grace. It is by only by grace, I'm sorry. It is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. 
In Matthew 7, a lot of people did a lot of boasting. Jesus, didn't we prophesy and preach your word? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And they were boasting about their religion and good works. And Jesus said, well, you might have done that, but I don't know you. What if you're doing all of these works right now, but you and God don't really know each other? The Bible is clear that it is by grace you have been saved. It is a gift. Why did he say a gift? Because a gift is given to be received. That is it. Jesus Christ came to die on the cross to give us salvation. The only thing is, will you receive it or not? That's it. John 3, 16, we all see it in football games, and that guy is always holding it up. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn you. Jesus did not come to this earth to just make you feel guilty and bad and terrible. He came to convict you of sin and reroute you back to the Father. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it through him. Through him, Jesus. Not Mohammed, not Buddha, not Gandhi, not you, not me, through Jesus, through Jesus. Jesus said this, number one, the door is narrow. The door is narrow. It's beautiful to think it's broad. All roads, like Oprah says, all roads, I believe, lead to him. She did one of these years. All roads lead to him. And as cute and nice as that sounds, that is a lie from the devil himself. Jesus says, I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The door is narrow. That word narrow is offensive, though, isn't it? I've been called it many times, narrow-minded. When I tell people Jesus is the only way, you're so narrow-minded. When I tell people Jesus is the only one that died and rose for sin, you're so narrow-minded. Maybe you have family members that don't know Jesus, and they think you're narrow-minded. The truth is, Jesus said it best. The road is narrow. Why is it so offensive to tell people that Jesus is the only way and it's the narrow road? Well, it's because today in our society, we have choices. And we love our choices. If I want to buy a car, I have to choose. I have Chevy, I have Ford, I have Toyota. I have Subaru, I have Nissan. So many choices. If I tell Jerrica, let's go out for a burger, 
That's so vain. We can go to Wendy's. We can go to McDonald's. We can go to Burger King. We can go to Five Guys, Burger Five. We can have all the gourmet burgers, all types of burgers, because we love our choices. If I say, oh, after our burger, why don't we go home and watch TV? Let's put on Netflix. Well, we have romantic comedies. We have horror. We have love stories. We have this. We have that genre. We have action. We have comedy. We have romance. We have so many choices. If we say, hey, after this movie, let's be spontaneous. Let's just hop on a plane and go somewhere. Well, what plane? Because we have Spirit Airlines. We have JetBlue. We have American. We have Delta. We have all of the choices. Well, when it comes to salvation, only have Jesus. Wait, 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 wait. Only Jesus? No, no, no. I need choices. And we say, no, only Jesus. No other choice. And I'm glad. Because I'm just glad he made a way. Amen? We have no other choice. And that's why a lot of people don't choose Jesus. Because the Bible says that Jesus told this man, strive for the narrow gate. What does that mean? The word strive, literally in the Greek, is agonazoma, which literally where we get the word agonizing from. You know why Jesus said this? Because he's being honest. Narrow is the gate. I'm the only way. But it's not easy to be a Christian. It's agonizing. It's hard. It's painful. And that's why many will try other ways. Because we want the easiest way to heaven. And salvation is easy. But walking with Jesus is not. But we want choices. And Jesus says many are going to try to enter through other ways. And that's why today the devil has blinded so many people into thinking that there are other ways to heaven. That's why we have all these religious wars all around the world right now, because everyone seems to be blinded and say, no, this is the way, this is God, this is the way to heaven. And Jesus said it clearly. I am the way. And the way is narrow. Not only did Jesus say the door is narrow. Verse 25, he says the door will close. Listen, he says the door will close. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside. He will close that door. If you've ever traveled by airlines, this is where I see how different me and Jerrica are. Everyone has a picture that Jerrica is so organized and neat and everything. And she is for everything else except when it comes to getting on time to the airport. I like to get there about three hours before, sometimes way before. If it were up to Jerrica, she would get ready to go to the airport in 30 minutes before the flight. And here's the thing. Sometimes we make it on time. Sometimes we barely make it, but we make it. And I don't care if you make it on time to heaven since you were a kid or a teenager and I've been, I grew up in a Christian home. I know Jesus. I'm ready. And some of you are going to barely make it, but you made it. But don't be the one 
that gets the door shut on you. The one that runs to the gate and it's too late. And the door is closed. I've sat in the airport before and seen this happening. I entertained myself with this. Because I see many people run to that gate and when they get there, they bargain. Could you just open it one time? And the lady there is so mean. She looks at you with a dead face and just says, due to federal regulation, I cannot open the door. There is a law that prevents me from opening this door. And there is the law, the word of God, that tells you nothing you can say will change God's mind once the door is closed. You will bargain with God. What if I go to church more? What if I pray more? Why don't you just give me one more chance? And God will say, due to the law of God, I gave you a chance. You had time, but you chose not to. Many will brag. Well, don't you know who I am? I'm a freaking flyer. I'm a member of this airline. I have X amount of hours and miles on my card. I always fly this airline. Can't you make an exception? And many people will brag to God. I go to church. I prayed. I led Sunday school. I preached in the pulpit. I went to church every Sunday and Wednesday. I knew the Bible. You can brag your way, but you will brag your way to hell. Many people in that airline gate, they blame it was the traffic. My Uber driver was late. There was a long line at the gate. I couldn't. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. The devil will look at you and laugh. You thought you were in here the whole time. You thought you were safe. But you didn't know you were on the wrong track. You were in my train to destruction. And here's the most frightening thing about hell. We have it all wrong, yes. Jesus said in verse 27 and 28 to this man, he will reply, I don't know you. I don't go no school. Or where you come from. Away from me, you evil doer. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A reference to hell. Jesus says, I will say, I don't know you, and you will go to hell. Jesus warned over 70 times about hell. The fire, as we learned, the fire of hell is real. Jesus said there's a chasm, a separation where you can never enter again. You will stay in hell forever. You will be alone. You will suffer emotional and physical torment forever and ever and ever for all eternity. But one of the most horrific descriptions of hell I have saved for today. <laughs> you ready for this? Matthew eleven twenty through 24. Again, Jesus talks about hell. He says, then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of the miracles have been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. 
and sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. These are places that Jesus never preached the gospel to. He said it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon of the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down into the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you have been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than you. Did you guys catch that? There are different degrees to hell. All of it is terrible. And you wish it upon no one. But here's where the devil deceives you. We say there's a special place in hell for the worst of the worst, don't we? We say there's a special place in hell for Hitler. There's a special place in hell for Fidel Castro. There's a special place in hell for child molesters. But we're wrong about that. Yes, they're in hell. Suffering the torment. But the ones that get it the worst, according to Jesus, in hell, are those that heard the gospel, witnessed Jesus, went to church, experienced him. How somehow you heard about Jesus, but like Capernaum, you rejected. In fact, in hell, the people that are getting is the worst are people that went to church, heard the gospel like you're hearing now. The ones that got invited to a church but said, nah, that's not for me. The ones that heard the gospel and laughed. The ones that went to church and did nothing. The ones that heard about Jesus but did not care. There's a special place in hell for people that heard about Jesus and rejected. And I believe that the worst torment in hell, besides the separation and the fire and the loneliness and the physical pain, is the emotional torment these people are going to have because you're going to remember every opportunity you had to give your life to Jesus and make him the Lord of your life. You're going to remember every pastor. You're going to remember every sermon, every opportunity, every invite, every day of your life that you had a chance to make Jesus Lord but didn't. You will remember why. And this is why Jesus says you will gnash your teeth in anger and in regret and in physical pain. You will gnash your teeth because you're going to remember I was there I was listening and I was distracted. I was bored. I didn't care. And Jesus says there's a special place in hell for you. 
There is a special place for pastors that have used the pulpit to manipulate their gain. Did not preach the gospel. But were more concerned about their little skinny jeans with holes and looking cool and just making it an emotional show. There is a special place in hell for people that went to church, that owned the Bible, but rejected it. Because Jesus said, You refused to repent. Repent literally means to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And repentance is no longer preached in the church as often as it should be. It is in this church. But repentance is where you change your mind about sin and you turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you don't just ask the Lord to save you. You ask Him to be the Lord of your life. Because He is Lord and Savior. So stop saying, well, I just want salvation. You cannot have salvation without Him having lordship over your life. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourself. There it is again. Examine yourself. Stop thinking about everyone else. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. This is one test you don't want to fail. This is a test you will not be graded on a bell curve. This is not a test you fail and the teacher says, you know, I'll give you another chance. You can make it up. This is a test that when you fail, you're in hell. It's a test that God gives you now so you know without a doubt whether you are truly saved or not. How many want to take this test today? I'm sure you all do. If you pass, great. I'll see you up there. The scary thing about this test is if you get one wrong, you're not saved. One. Can we take this test today? This is like my last sermon on earth, remember? So I'm saying I'm going to grade you now. But before we take this test and then dismiss, can I pray? Let's all pray together. Jesus, we stand here today in church. Saved or unsaved. We're present here. Maybe we're listening online. Maybe we're on the right track to heaven. Maybe we're on the wrong track thinking we're on the right track. But I pray, Jesus, truly pray. You would reveal our hearts to us. Because, Lord, if this would be my last sermon on earth, I would want everyone here today in heaven with me. 
that this test be taken without judgment, criticism. Let us open our minds and our hearts to reveal the truth in humility. Let's take this test together. Examine yourself. Number one, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if, everyone say if, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That's it. The old has gone, the new has come. If you are truly born again and saved, you're able to see a new you. If you say you're a Christian, but you're the same old person, you are not saved. You still struggle with some old sins that God is working on. You still make old mistakes that God convicts you of. But if you say without a doubt, I am a Christian, but I have no shame or remorse or guilt about being the same old person in my sin, don't tell me you have the Holy Spirit convicting you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There is a new nature in you, a new desire in you, a new way of thinking that causes you to desire a new way of living. There's new. You're new and you're new. Do not say you're a Christian and you're still the same old you. 1 Peter 4, 2 through 5. As a result of being saved, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for the evil human desires. When you are truly saved, your desires change. Before Jesus, you had no desire to serve him, no desire to worship, no desire for his word. But see, don't tell me you're saved and you still have the same old evil human desires, but rather your desires for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. You know that when you're really saved, you don't go back to the same pagan lifestyle with the same pagan people. That's just not right for you to say I'm a Christian, but I'm going to go back to the same old world that Jesus got me out of. If that is you, Jesus never got you out of that world because you're still in it. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. How many remember your pagan days? Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They, the pagans, the ones that don't know Jesus, they think it's strange you do not plunge with them. If you say you're a Christian, but you're plunging with the ungodly, you are not a Christian. They think it's strange. And I'm not saying you're the type of Christian that's weird because you have some weird t-shirt on and oh, I love Jesus. And you're weird. The world should look at you and think that you're strange because you don't live like them. You don't talk like them. You don't act like them. You don't desire what they desire. They invite you to a party. You say, no, that's not me anymore. Man, that's weird. That used to be you. You were up there grinding. You were up there wasted. And you don't want to do this anymore? That's weird. They think it's weird that you want to go to church on Sunday. You guys are strange. You should be in the beach right now. You should be at the sandbar right now. You should be wasted right now from last night. But you want to be in church? That is strange. You want to learn the Bible? That is strange. You don't listen anymore to secular worldly music and watch filth? That is strange. You are strange to the world. But you know what I see in the church now? 
a lot of the world looks at you and, and they don't see a difference. You plunge with them. The same flood of deception. That's what the devil likes to do. You know you're saved because they heap abuse on you. Oh, you think you're better than us? You think, oh, you're judgmental? Oh, you're saved now? You're a Christian, so now you have no time for us? I'm not going to call you anymore. I'm going to unfollow you. I'm going to delete your number. I want nothing to do with you. If that is you, praise God, because the world should hate you because of Jesus, not love you. But we have too many people that profess to be Christians, but the world has no abuse on them because they are just like them. What a test, Jesus says. Can I keep going? 1 John 5, 4. For everyone born of God overcomes what? The world. That, that word overcome is literally a battle and where you are victorious. When you are a Christian, you battle with the world, but ultimately you win. If you say you're a Christian, but the world is winning, where you can't overcome it, it's because you don't have the Spirit of God in you. And what I see today is a lot of people in the church that just want to look like the world, act like the world, think like the world, because the world is something they have not overcome. But it still overcomes them. They still want to be a part of it. They still want to taste it. They still have no problem in it. There is a problem if you're in the world and it doesn't battle with you, it doesn't fight you, it's because you are not saved. When you are saved and you step foot in the world, like because we can't get away from it, there's something that fights you. You say, I don't belong here. This is not who I am. I don't like this anymore. I can't believe I used to be into this. And you do not allow it to overcome you. This is the victory, the Bible says, that has overcome the world, even our faith. You have victory over the world. But if you see a professing Christian that are still worldly, they're not saved. 1 John 1, 6-7, let's keep taking this test. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. We don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us of our sin. How do you know you have been purified and born again and saved? You claim to live in light, but you still walk in sin and darkness. The Bible says light and darkness can't mix. You know, on Friday, I went out to dinner with my mom. And we were out in the ranch. I got dressed in the dark. I got in my truck, and out there, there's no lights. It's pitch black. I was in my truck. It was dark. It was nighttime the whole time. When we got to the restaurant that I finally walked into the light, I had a massive hole in my shirt. I knew it was wrong, and my mom was like, literally like this. You wore that? And I said, what? And I went, whoa, there's a hole. But you know what's crazy? 
when I was in the dark, I didn't see it. Didn't see a need to fix it, change, or nothing. That's what it's like when you've really been in the light of Jesus. You're able to really see sin for what it is. And you're no longer comfortable with it. So when I got home, I threw that shirt away. I didn't make excuses for it. I didn't say, Mom, don't judge me. I didn't say, Mom, you know, I can make this work. You know, this isn't sound. A lot of holes and jeans and shirts. I like this. It's like I look like Kanye a little bit. You know, I think I can do it. But that's where a lot of Christians are today, a lot of false Christians. They know when they walk into the light of God's word, they see and expose the sin, but we excuse it and justify it. Oh, don't judge me, don't criticize. No one's perfect. Jesus loves me. Come as you are. You come as you are because you don't want to change because you're not saved. But when you walk in the light as he is in the light, he exposes sin for what it is, and you have a desire to change it and get rid of it and never go back to it. If you claim that you're in the light, but there's a bunch of holes in your clothes and you don't care? You're not saved. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. We know that we have come to know him. Gonosco. You've had a relationship with him. You've experienced him. And we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete. This is how we know we are in him. When you are truly saved, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to obey him all the time. But there is a natural New desire to obey God. That even when you don't, you recognize you haven't and you repent of it. But there is a desire for you to say, Lord, I want to live for your word. I want to do it your way. When you are not truly saved, you do not have that nature to want to do it God's way. Church, does this make sense? 1 John 1.8 if we claim to be without sin, we deceive, there's that word again, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As a Christian, you know that you claim to be with sin. What does that mean? When you are truly saved and you sin, you claim it. You bring it before God and say, Lord, I sinned today. Lord, I did this today. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Lord, I should not have said that. I should not have treated my spouse like that. I should not have done that. Lord, the Lord brings to light the hole in the shirt, right? And you look at that and you say, Lord, this is wrong. I'm sorry I wore this today. But see, when you don't have Jesus in your life, you think you're good. You think you're fine. You look at your life, the evil, the debauchery, the sin, the lust, and you think everything is fine. You claim to be without sin. You say, oh, no, this is fine. I'm okay. You're quick to admit sin. 1 John 3, 5 through 6. But you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on what? No one who continues to sin 
have either seen him or gnosko him. It doesn't mean that you're going to be sinless, none of us are. But see, you cannot continue to live in sin. You cannot say, I'm saved, I know this is a sin, but I'm going to live in it anyways. I'm in the light, I know I have a hole in my shirt, but I'm going to wear it anyways. I don't care. If that's your attitude towards sin, it's because God is not living in you. Sin decreases. Here's a big one, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life, that we are saved because we love our brothers. We love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. You know one of the true marks of a Christian is love? Now, you know, you're not going to like anyone. Let's get real. That's okay. I don't like some of you here. I'm, not, I'm being honest. I'm, I'm not going to call you to play golf with me. I'm not going to call you to fish. I'm going to call you to hang out. Why? Because I don't like you. I'm not judging you. I just, we don't, we're different. But you know why none of you know who I'm talking about? Because I love you all. I respect you. I treat you kindly. I don't look at you and go, oh. When you're a Christian, you may not like everyone, but you love everyone. A Christian that lives with unforgiveness and rage and bitterness doesn't mean you're not going to get angry at people, you're not going to say the wrong things, and you're not going to go through a moment of bitterness. But when you're a true believer, you don't live that way. Hate is gone. You walk in love. When you're a true believer, 1 John 1, 3 says you desire fellowship with God and each other. When you're a true believer, you know you desire to be in church with other believers. When you're a believer, you desire to be around other Christians with God. People that say, I'm a Christian, but it's just me and God. I don't need to go to church. You don't need to go to church because you ain't saved. The Bible is clear. Don't make a habit of missing the fellowship of unbelievers with believers because a lot of people think that this is just an option. No, the Bible is clear. When you have a love for the church, when you have a love for other believers that you want to be with them, that is a sign that you are saved. You know who doesn't want to be in church with believers? Lost people. If you ever gone a week or two or three without being in church, come see me after. We got to talk. Because yes, you miss church. Yes, you're busy. Sometimes you get sick. Life happens. But if you're the type of person that's okay with never being put in the church, never being around other Christians, and you're okay with that, and you have no desire to be in worship with other Christians, you're not saved. Why? Because when you think about what heaven is, heaven is all fellowship with believers and God. If you don't like that now, you ain't going to like it in heaven. That's why you're not going. There's a desire for the church. There's a desire. So when, when my family or me and Jericho, we go out of town and it's a Sunday morning, we say, man, let's go to church today. And I'm excited because I said I get a Sunday off and I go to worship and I pray because there's a desire for me to be in the presence of God with other believers. 
But don't tell me you're a Christian. But church is not a priority in fellowship with other believers. And I'll close with this. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us because they did not really belong to us. When you're really not a Christian, you can't fake it forever. You might be in the church for a season, a few years, but ultimately the devil gets you back in the world. And I have seen more people leave the faith than I have come into the faith. And I want to say, man, they were in our church, they served, they prayed with us, they were here, they were some of my best leaders. What happened to them? Why is it that I log on now and I see them in social media? They're out in the club, they're drinking, they're smoking, they're partying, they're cursing, they're with other believers, non-believers, they're gay, they're this, they're that. You think, what happened? The devil says it was you. You're a lousy pastor, obviously. It's your church. It failed them. No. They left us because they weren't really of us. Now, if they left us to go to another church, God bless them. I'll tell that pastor, keep them. If they left us because they moved and they're somewhere else in the church serving, I said, great. But I'm talking about those that leave to never step foot in the fellowship of believers, to never serve God, to live for the world. The only explanation God gives us is because they were never truly saved. Church, I wonder how you did on that test today. You know why I love this sermon? Because as I studied it, it's always great to be reminded that you're saved. And I looked at that test and I said, it's the first test I got 100 on. The first test I didn't have to cheat. Or ask Enrique, hey, can you help me here? What about you? Church, if this was my last Sunday on earth, I would pray to see you again. You know what's going to happen to me in heaven is what Jesus says in verse 29 and 30. People will come from east and west and north and south. And Jesus is saying if heaven's going to be filled with people from every all walks of life. Jesus has opened up heaven to anyone. We give him praise for that. He didn't say, hey, heaven is for the Baptists, heaven's for the Pentecostals, heaven, listen. Heaven is for everyone. But not everyone will go to heaven. People will come from the east, west, and north, and south and will take their places in the feast in the kingdom of God. I can't wait to be in that feast and look at my church like the Lord has given me the blessing to pastor and say, man, look at me. Oh, look at Cheeto. Hey, Cheeto, where's Barbie? I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) To look at all of you. Even the ones I don't like, I'm like, well, you know, whatever. It is what it is. I love you all. Now, can you imagine the Ford Fellowship table in heaven? VIP. VIP. Can you imagine? No. It's going to be loud. We got the Puerto Rican with us. We're like, oh, man, here we go. It's going to be fun. 
But see, Jesus said this, indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. You know what Jesus said here? There are those who are last that will be first. Meaning, there are those that make it to heaven. And you're going to wonder, how did you get here? How did you make it here? That's going to be the four fellowship tables. Because we're imperfect people that are last here on earth. We may not be the best, the most influential, but we were a part of a church that preached the gospel, that preached repentance. And we're going to sit in our tables and I'm going to wonder and say, hey, how did you? Well, I'm glad you're here. But the Bible says there are those that are first that will be last. And we're going to sit at that table and say, hey, we're so-and-so. People that thought they were first. I'm the first one in heaven. I know it because I was in church with Pastor David. I was in church at Forward every Sunday and Wednesday. I helped. I served. I was there. I was faithful. I'm the first one and they're not there. What I'm saying to you, church, is I don't want anyone to think they're first when they're last and not going to make it. With every head bowed and every eye closed today, if this was my last sermon on earth, I would go in peace knowing I preached the gospel today. I would go in peace knowing I did my job that the Lord has called me to do as a pastor. But my question to you today, church, is are you saved? The devil wants you on that train to see. So I'll stand to our feet as we pray today. Father, in Jesus' name, open the hearts of those that want to be sure today. This is you today. There's a decision you're going to have to make today. You're either going to say, Pastor, I'm saved. I know it without a doubt, and I thank you for reminding me but I'm saved. Then there are those that say, Pastor, I'm not sure. I hope so. I think so. Don't be that person. Be sure today that if you were to die, Jesus would say, I know them. Because while they were on earth, they confessed that they were sinners and they made me the Lord of their life. It's not enough to just say, Lord, save me, because anyone would pray that prayer if hell was on the line. It's to say, make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, knowing that he died on the cross for your sins and that he is the only way to heaven. Yes, is it narrow? Absolutely. Jesus is the only way and he made a way when there was no way because he loves you. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Don't wait till tomorrow because tomorrow is not promised. Don't wait for next time because next time is not a guarantee. Today is the day of salvation. And with the world that we're living in today, we don't even know if Jesus is going to return tonight. Be ready, church. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed today. If you're saved, praise God for that. But now today is the day I invite you to this altar today. We're going to pray together if this is you today. If, if no one is on this altar today, then I hope it means all of us. God bless you. God bless you, dear. Come on, give it up for you today. God bless you today. God bless you. Don't be embarrassed. It's just an altar. Come on, you come up. God bless you, Nancy. You come up. You pray. You pray today and say, Lord, I want this to be real in my life. You come. Come on, Kevin. Give it up for Kevin today. I've been praying for you, Kevin. Come on. You pray today. You come forward as you are. No judgment. Let's pray today. Would you also extend your hand to them today? And just pray this from your heart. Just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know you died on the cross for my sins. And today, I ask you to forgive me. Be the Lord of my life. And save me from my sins. In Jesus' name, I am yours. Do with me as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the family of God. Come on, give them a round of applause. Come on, church. You guys can do better than that. Come on, give God some praise today. God bless you.